Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Ascend and Transcend with Coach Elizabeth. I am excited to have our guest today. Um, his name is Mark Hennick, and he you've probably seen his TED Talk, which has over 6 million views on why we need to talk about suicide. And if you haven't checked it out, I highly recommend that you do. He's also the principal and CEO of Strategic Mental Health Solutions, a boutique consulting firm that specializes in helping organizations and individuals to move more strategically from basic mental health awareness towards meaningful, measurable action. Um, he's been on countless TV shows. There's way too much uh, to go through. But I really felt called to have Mark on today because suicide and mental health is obviously something that's really prevalent in our society, always has been, but even more so now. And I can't help but feel that there is a very strong spiritual link to that and towards kind of coming more towards the light in a way that feels healthy and thriving for everybody's mental strength. So welcome, Mark. Thank you so much for being a guest today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited for our conversation. Yeah. So why don't you start with just telling our listeners a little bit about your journey, um, and then we'll get into specifically kind of where you are today and if your focus has shifted any more than it did from obviously when you were younger and had some struggles to the TED Talk to where you are now. Sure. I mean, my work that I do today, everything that I do today is so um, inextricably linked with my difficult uh, upbringing, uh, with my experiences with uh, mental illness, with uh, my suicide attempts and repeated hospitalizations as a teenager. Um, you know, it, it all started for me in many ways when I thought it was the end. I thought that I couldn't possibly continue the way that I'd been living. I'd been diagnosed with depression and anxiety when I was 12 years old. Um, I think I'd been dealing with it for years prior to that, uh, largely, I think, because of the environment that I was in, but also just happened to be one of those uh, few people who probably had a genetic and biological predisposition as well. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, when you go through that kind of trauma, especially when it seems to surround you from every angle and and come from within you as well, you think that life will never get better. And it wasn't until uh, I, I thought I, I couldn't go any further. And it was what ended up being my final suicide attempt uh, when I had climbed up over the railing of a bridge in my hometown on the East Coast uh, in Sydney, Nova Scotia. Uh, and I was fully prepared to end my life until a stranger stopped his car and he came over and talked to me. Uh, and if it wasn't for that man at that time, I wouldn't be alive here today uh, without him creating that space and that connection for me. And then ultimately, when I eventually did let go, as the story I told in my TED Talk, uh, he grabbed me and, and pulled me back. If it wasn't for him, you know, I, I owe him uh, not just my life, literally, uh, but my life more holistically in that in that I've been living my whole life ever since that moment trying to be just like him, to be like the stranger who reaches out to others. Uh, so that's, I mean, that's what I do now. I, I dedicate my whole life to trying to uh, give back uh, what I needed when I was young and struggling. Do you feel that that the man in the light brown jacket, as you refer to him, do you feel like he was an angel guide or a guardian angel of some sort? Do you feel like he was divinely sent there that day? Or do you feel like it was just a coincidence? What's the difference? <laughs> you know, I, I'm, <laughs> exactly. I'm not sure I know what the difference is because 
Um, there were so many uh, moments of confluence, of, of synchronicity. And, you know, look, I don't know what I believe uh, in terms of, of spirituality. I'm a very, I identify as a very spiritual person, um, but I don't know uh, what that is. And I think in some ways, doubt and uncertainty is, is my spirituality uh, and leaning into that uncertainty. Um, what I can say is that um, when he arrived, he was exactly the person that I needed to arrive at that time. Um, I had talked to countless uh, mental health professionals and doctors and psychologists, psychiatrists, guidance counselors, all kinds of people, and and none of them were really helping. I don't think out of um, uh, out of a, a, a lack of desire to help, although that might have been the case in a, in a few places. I think it was just that they didn't know how, and that they were they were victims of their training in some ways. They were trying to treat me. Uh, I felt like a broken down car on the side of the road, like I was just another case uh, or a test tube, um, and that's not what I needed. I needed somebody to see me and to hear me, to feel with me, uh, and to to really connect with me. And that's exactly what that stranger did in that moment. So I don't know why he was there or even how he saw me there. I'm sure lots of other people drove by, but right. but this guy saw me and stopped. Well, I think he was divinely sent there to protect you. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think that something like that um, is a coincidence. I think that, you know, I mean, because that wasn't your first attempt, right? So, yeah. and the, the guidance counselor, right, who, who stopped you um, when you had the knife at your neck. I think that those were all people who were divinely sent your way. That's my personal belief. And we, no, nobody knows anything, right? Anybody who says that they know doesn't. Um, we can never really know until we transition, I guess, into the next fold of the new dimension or whatever. But I think that it's really interesting when you talk about wanting to feel seen. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Because I know that a lot of people right now, I mean, we've seen the statistics and I'm sure you have more up-to-date ones than I've seen as far as um, you know, depression and other mental illness struggles that are happening and that are on the rise since the start of the pandemic. Um, can you share a little bit with us about anything that you know, as far as like inside statistics and things of where we're at right now, and then maybe how we can help somebody else feel seen if we do have some concern that they're having some suicidal thoughts? Yeah, well, what we know from all of the research is that the types of challenges that I was experiencing, while they seem extreme and they were, they're actually not all that uncommon. Uh, and in fact, in the United States alone, more than 40,000 people every single year die by suicide. Uh, and some estimates are that anywhere from 10 to 25 or more uh, attempts, there are between 10 to 25 as many attempts as there are uh, suicides. So we know that a lot more people are both dying by suicide than we, than we realize, more than murder and war combined globally, actually. Um, there are far more people who have a history of at least one attempt. Uh, but then also to take an, a step back even further in that progression, that suicide, I'm of the firm belief, and, and I think that the, the uh, data supports this, suicide doesn't come from nowhere. It, it usually is the result of uh, a significant amount of struggle. Uh, mm -hmm. Undiagnosed or diagnosed, that doesn't matter because diagnosis is a whole other, other issue. But what that means is that if we have this many people dying, we have uh, many more people attempting, there are many, many more people who have the pre-existing uh, risk factors that lend it, lend themselves into these experiences. So, you know, we you've, many people have probably heard the statistic that any somewhere between one and four and one and five 
people will experience a mental health problem or illness in any given year. And then when you actually zoom out, it's it's a full half of people by the time they reach the age 40. And by the end of their natural life, virtually everybody will experience a mental health problem or illness of some kind. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I think that everybody has a sense of what uh, these issues are like, at least a little piece of it. And that's why it's always so shocking to me that the stigma still exists as strongly right. as it does, you know, we, because we're afraid of something that we are experiencing. We're not right. afraid of the other as we think we are. That's part of the issue, sure. Yeah. But we're afraid of ourselves. We're afraid of this darkness that's in ourselves. Uh, and, you know, maybe that does actually explain part of the stigma. I remember, you know, in your TED talk, talking with your counselor when you had the knife to your neck and you said, there, I can't, like, there's no other way. This is it. And I think that's one thing. I think another thing is the stigma around anybody saying they want to die immediately. It's like, well, if I say that, or I'm having suicidal thoughts, which I don't know who honestly hasn't, I mean, I don't know if mine was from postpartum. And I love the statistic you gave in your Ted talk on that. Um, But I think at some point, everybody's at least wondered. I don't know if anybody's gone as far as to attempt it. But I think you would be lying to yourself. You said, I've never thought about that. You know, I've never thought about jerking the car off the highway or whatever it is, because we all have it. And until everybody starts talking about this, this stigma is just going to grow and grow. I think that's true. And, and you know, there's nothing... Uh, it- in the, in the idea of death itself, suicide isn't a crime. That's why we don't right. say commit suicide anymore, because it's been decriminalized. It's been removed from criminal codes uh, around the world, actually, in most jurisdictions. Uh, so that's why that's not accurate to say commit suicide anymore. Um, but also, we know that 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 there's something else going on uh, behind the scenes that I say in the TED Talk that suicide is a public health concern, a public health crisis, actually. It's a medical issue. It's a terminal outcome uh, often of mental illnesses. There are other factors and other circumstances for sure, but the vast majority, it's generally agreed, uh, is tied up in in some form of a mental illness. And depending on their spiritual beliefs or their religious constructs, they find all kinds of ways to rationalize what it is they're feeling. You know, I've heard it all. I've felt most of it. Um, People will will, uh, be glad that I'm gone. I'll be less of a burden. Uh, it'll be better off this way. All of those things are incorrect. They're not wrong. They're not morally wrong. We need to separate out those two things between factual correctness uh, and some sort of moral judgment. There is no moral, or there should be in my mind, any moral judgment about suicide. It's not right. selfish or you're not going to go to hell. You're not going to, you know, <laughs> I don't uh, subscribe to any of those beliefs yeah. around suicide. Uh, what I do subscribe to, however, is that uh, you are absolutely in a skewed mental place. And we see in, in people who have died by suicide, there are differences, structural differences mm-hmm. uh, in their brain. brain. Does that mean they were born to be suicidal? No, it actually probably doesn't. But it does mean that their brain is shaping their reality in such a way for them to make them think that it's hopeless and helpless. When in fact, we know from the science of neuroplasticity, for just from the science of learning, that your brain can change in more helpful ways too. Uh, and if in fact that person had the right circumstances, the right interventions, uh, that they could actually think differently uh, about their situation. So that was really one of the biggest, I think, um, objectives of my TED Talk was not just to stand on a stage and tell people my own story about my own uh, suicide attempts. That for me was a vehicle 
to try to show people what that cognitive rigidity is like, that perceptual collapse when you get locked into that place and you think that it's reality, when really it's your depression lying to you so convincingly that it makes you think it's the right reality. Yeah. So um, real quick, because I know I I did the faux pas and I said, commit suicide. What is the um, language that we should be using instead instead of saying commit suicide? Yeah. So, I mean, look, saying commit suicide is still by far the most common way that people refer to it. Uh, But this was actually one of the things uh, that motivated me uh, to want to do the TED Talk to begin with, that you'll notice that I say that uh, people who complete suicide, they either complete suicide or they die by suicide. But again, they don't commit because you don't uh, you don't commit to cancer. You don't commit to diabetes. Uh, You you don't commit a heart attack. Uh, So therefore, you don't commit suicide either. So I'll say die by suicide uh, or complete suicide. Okay. well, thank you for that. Before we moved on, I just wanted to make sure that we had that right, because I think that I love your point in your TED talk about, right, it's not doing something to somebody else. You're not committing a crime or something like this. And I think that is all just wrapped up very deeply in the roots of this stigma, right? Even just using that verbiage. So I want to make sure that um, we understand the proper way and the more right. a, you know, awakened way of speaking of it. Well, really- and, and I, I just want to mention too, the um, why we do that. You know, it's not just a matter of being language police or being politically yeah. correct. Although I think there is a role for being respectful of other people and having- well, words have somewhere- power. Yeah, words have power and it's having this emotional intelligence to realize that, hey, maybe this might be the way I want to speak, Mm -hmm. but maybe that isn't so helpful for some other people. And maybe I should care about other people. So that's part of it. Right. Um, But also, I think, you know, what you're telegraphing uh, often unconsciously and unintentionally. But what is telegraphed is that the word commit is 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 linked to criminality. Everybody knows that, even if you can think of examples where it's not. But it's generally linked to criminality. So what you're telegraphing to somebody who's suicidal is an idea of criminality, that they are criminal, that they're morally bad, that they're wrong for doing all this stuff. Let's get meaning out of it here. And let's just look at the facts. I think that's the way that we need to approach uh, a health concern like suicidality. Absolutely. No, that's so helpful. And this kind of conversation, anybody who listens to this, even if they just pick up that nugget, um, this is the ripple effect that we want, right? Like this is what your work is about is really trying to reshape because the stigma is really what's keeping it secretive and hidden and looked at as negative. And mental health is not a negative, right? It just is. Until we start labeling shit as good or bad or healthy or unhealthy, um, it just is. And so it's really up to the person, to your point, to have that insight that this is not me talking. This is actually the depression talking. This is something else that has infiltrated my mind that is not me. And it's it's not what your soul wants. It's not what I believe. Okay, so next I wanted to talk a little bit about something that you mentioned earlier in our conversation about, I think you said six predispositions um, or underlying conditions that could lead to having some mental health issues, even potentially towards suicide. Can you tell us a little bit more about those? Sure. Well, uh, I don't know if I said the word six, but there are certainly many uh, pre-existing conditions. Um, The research shows pretty conclusively that depression uh, is one of the most common underlying factors leading to suicide, Uh, to the degree, actually, that if we want to do effective suicide prevention, uh, we have to do so much more than just lining up the ambulances at the bottom of the bridge and building fences and making hotlines. All of that stuff is, is good to have, too. 
But really, we know if we want to reduce suicide, we need to address depression uh, because yeah. it's that that closely linked. Um, another one, substance related disorders, substance abuse in particular, uh, is highly correlated uh, with suicide. Um, other extreme conditions with extreme thought distortions, for example, like schizophrenia or mm-hmm. experiences of psychosis uh, are closely linked to suicide uh, and a number of other issues, major life changes, you know, having a baby, uh, certainly death, um, losing a job, financial downturns. We've seen suicide spikes uh, in each of these, um, certainly um, irresponsibly reported uh, suicides. Around the death of Kurt Cobain back in the 90s, uh, right. we saw a huge spike in suicides because it was covered so irresponsibly by media. So we know that there's a number of factors uh, mm-hmm. that can influence this, but but depression in particular, if I could pick only one uh, to really move the needle on, on suicide, it would yeah. be on better treating depression. And that's so vast too, right? It's like, you could say, well, what are symptoms of depression? And maybe you can Google that. But I would say too, especially for all the parents out there, right, who had kids who were home and and I've spoken with parents as well whose children died by suicide and they're really struggling. And I wonder if if you see any, if there have been any statistical links between like a parent then becoming incredibly depressed or even suicidal after their child dies by suicide. Oh, absolutely. I mean, even even before that, while their child is dealing with their mental illness, being a family caregiver is incredibly heavy, you know, and and especially if your child was somebody like me, a kid like me, who had uh, a lot of interfaces with the system and was just really struggling. And then you're told all the time that how difficult it is and and, uh, you feel like a failure, you feel guilty, you feel that you're doing something wrong. Um, So I think that the first thing that parents need to do if they're in that pre-suicide place where they have a kid who's just struggling really, uh, really hard, um, to be able to make sure that you separate yourself out as much as you can. This isn't easy Mm -hmm. as a parent, but separate you from them as much as they can, that uh, as much as you can, that you are not not the same person as them anymore. And this is one of the most difficult transitions for any parent, right? To realize that they have their own mind, that they think with their own brain, that they're not inside you anymore. Um, So to do a little bit of that uh, work on individuation, and you know what chances are that that kid, especially if they're a teenager, that's what they're trying to do anyway, is to try to become their own person, to become a little bit separate. But then what you want to do is to make sure that you're still building and focusing on that relationship with them uh, uh, into who they are trying to become. Uh, So instead of coming in and saying that they're broken, that they're wrong, that they're stupid for thinking of this stuff, that don't you realize what this is doing to to your family or to me? I had all these things said to me. And often- often well-meaning, you love them so much that your love will make you say and do things often very extreme. There's nothing wrong necessarily with that. But if we can mold those responses a little bit, and as a parent, to focus less on fixing their broken brain and more on how much you love them and how how great how much you want to develop your connection with them Mm -hmm. and do things with them. You know, I, I tell this to parents who have uh, kids with with longstanding struggles in particular, and sometimes they look at me like I'm crazy, which I mean, according to my doctors, I no, no longer am. Um, <laughs> but, um, but I tell them, you know, um, don't worry right now about what medication they're on or what therapy they're on. Their clinical teams or, or doctors will worry about that stuff. Do something fun with them. Yeah. When's the last time you had a conversation with them that wasn't about how broken they are? 
you know, yeah. focus on the, on who they, who you still see in them. I think that's one of the most therapeutic things that you can do for, for a kid who's struggling because behavior is information, right? It, yeah. it just tells you what's going on in that person's mind. And when somebody has a reaction that somebody who attempts or dies by suicide is selfish uh, or they're just doing it for attention, that's another really common oh. one as well. Um, I think what's happening there uh, is that, is that the idea of death uh, on its own is scary, but then the idea that somebody that I love so much might die, that they might do this to me, they might make me hurt that badly. Of course, that triggers some powerful emotions, yeah. you know? So, so I think that when we have those feelings, especially with somebody who's vulnerable, we need to stop ourselves. We need to, we need to exhibit our own um, uh, behavioral inhibition, which is exactly, by the way, what they're, we're accusing them of right. not doing is, is stopping enough. We need to do that ourselves and, and realize maybe I shouldn't say this because this person who's especially vulnerable probably isn't going to receive it in the most constructive way. So I think the, the, um, uh, method, both whether you're, or whether you're a struggling person or you love a struggling person yeah. is just to try to create that space, that space between stimulus and response. Uh, that's, that's where we breathe. I think that's where we find our recovery. And as Viktor Frankl said, our freedom. 100%. I love that. And I think, you know, what you said is right on it as far as like, you know, they're just all emotions and, there's like, there's fear and there's love. And even if you're speaking out of fear, it's because it's tied to love. You know, it all comes back to them just not wanting you to go anywhere and wanting to be able to enjoy you and all of that. And it can come out in ways that feel unproductive and can actually feel like a pile on to the person who's already struggling, adding more demands to them, which they feel like, um, you know, they're out of control of, right? Because they're not um, in a great headspace. So I love well, this know, conversation. I've got uh, three kids of my own and I learned right from the very first one, uh, my oldest boy, uh, that kids, unlike anybody else, will make you experience every possible emotion <laughs> there, there is. And who, what parent hasn't, uh, I hope anyway, at the end of the day, really looked back at some reaction they had to their kid because they were tired or they were hungry or whatever it is and thought, wow, why, that was yeah. a bit much. Why? Like, <laughs> so we, we are just raw wires. And you know what? That's okay. That's human. You're supposed yeah. to be. Um, when it isn't normal, and this comes back to the, the core, I think, the heart of my, my TED Talk as well. When it becomes problematic is when you cling to one idea, one reaction, uh, one way of being. You cling to it so rigidly that you won't let yourself change. You won't yeah. forgive yourself. You won't just, you won't let that thing go. And that's what I was experiencing when I was suicidal. I clung to that idea so tightly that I was hopeless, that I was helpless, that nothing would ever get better, that this was my only option. If I had actually let some competing information into my mind, if I was able to in that, in that time, yeah. that's what would have helped me to, to introduce some expansiveness. And really, I think that's in, in some ways what the stranger in the light brown jacket, what he created that safe space, that brave space for me to do that, to, to entertain other options than just the present. Yeah. So let me ask you this. Do you feel like as somebody who struggled with suicidal thoughts and, and had attempts of suicide, do you ever feel like you're completely out of the woods or do you feel like that, you know, that I don't even call it darkness, that voice that still wonders about doing that never completely leaves your side? 
You know, I, I think recovery um, evolves in many different ways, especially when you've been doing it for a while. I tell people sometimes I've gotten very good at being depressed um, because you recognize the different flavors of it, the different smells yeah. of it. it. It changes over the years. And I think very early on, um, those initial relapses seem to to uh, be a, almost a self-fulfilling prophecy, or they seem to self-reinforce this idea that I would never get better, right? Because I would get a little bit better, and then I would relapse and think, I just, I can't get it because I keep falling back. And then at some point, something shifted. Um, this was after I, I went away to college. I started to build my own life a little bit more. And I had a relapse as, you know, I was having them twice a year early on, uh, two, three times a year early on. Uh, and I had another one and I started to realize, you know what? I've been here before. I've been here a lot of times before and I've gotten through it a lot of times before. What makes this time any different? I mean, don't get me wrong. It still sucks. It's still hard. Yeah. But what if I just let it suck? <laughs> then I'll get through it just like I have so many times before. And that's really that really has changed to such a degree that that later in my life, um, I started to realize, you know, I don't have depression anymore. And I had it for a long time and I might get it again. But do I identify as a depressed person in perpetuity, despite the fact that I meet none of the or very few of the clinical uh, right. uh, symptoms anymore? No, I don't think I do. So I think that's what helps us to separate out mental illnesses as being part of your identity, who you are. I am a depressive versus I have depression. Yes. And maybe in a few weeks, I won't. And maybe I will again in a few years. We'll deal with that when it happens. I think that's that necessary separation between identity and experience. 100%. Anytime you say I am, it's incredibly powerful as far as what you're training your brain to think, this kind of default of this label that maybe you had at one point or other people wanted to label you, but there's so much more to you and to everyone than that. So I applaud you for taking your journey and turning it into an act of service for others and using the various platforms that you have to really get the word out. This can't be easy talking about these kind of topics and these subjects um, day in and day out, but I really applaud the fact that you've taken something that was so hard and turned it into hope for others. And I appreciate um, you spending some time with us today and being open and honest and vulnerable with us. I have no doubt that this conversation will help every single person who listens to it. Thank you so much. And as long as these conversations are challenging, that's all the yeah. proof that we need that we need to keep having them. So I hope that people uh, go in and now extend this conversation yes. uh, beyond just listening to your show. And tell people where they can find more information about you. And the sure, well, I'm not very hard normal. to find. I mean, if you look it up on uh, either the TED Talk on Google, yeah. uh, you know, my name is Mark Hennick. I'm at markhennick.com. I'm on most social media platforms, though I haven't gotten into TikTok yet. Who knows? We'll see. Maybe someday. <laughs> yeah. uh, and my book, of course, is So-Called Normal, a Memoir of Family Depression and Resilience. That's up on Amazon, Barnes and & Noble, and, and most other uh, book retailers. Wonderful resources, everyone. So please um, check Mark out. Thanks again, Mark. Everyone, please join us next week where we'll have another fantastic guest and we hope to share a little bit of love and enlightenment with you.